0: Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone striving for a pro-social world. On today's show, we're going to be talking with Minnesota Representative Brad Tapke about this historic Minnesota session. This year, Minnesota protected reproductive rights, created paid family leave, 100% clean energy by 2040, and Minnesota became the 23rd state to legalize cannabis. Minnesota also passed the Lawn to Legume Program, which was authored by Brad Tapke. So we're going to talk to Brad about how this session impacted food and agriculture in Minnesota. But first, this week, Oxford University hosted a debate between Alan Savory and George Ma- mombio on the topic, is livestock grazing essential to mitigating climate crisis, the climate change crisis? So can moving towards grass bed, grass-fed beef um, help with the climate crisis? George Mambio. Mombio says a strong no. And somewhat surprisingly, Alan Savory did not address the topic of carbon during the debate, but the Savory Institute released a news release afterwards saying, quote, in multiple peer-reviewed journals, holistic management has been shown to regenerate ecosystem function and sequester significant amounts of carbon. Why these rates are highly dependent on geographic climate, soil type and other factor, these rates often range from 0.5 to 10 tons of carbon per hectare per year. Alan Alan, uh, co-founded the Savory Institute in 2013, and he has a TED Talk. And his TED Talk has been listened to about 11 million times. And so his story is – his information appears in uh, several documentaries, including the documentary Kiss the Ground, narrated by uh, Woody Harrelson. But George um, Mondeo says that some of the world's biggest meat companies are using false claims about the alleged benefits of pasture-fed beef in their advertising – and worse still, a new market has developed in which companies such as Microsoft, Microsoft buy carbon credits from ranches from ranches, and on the mistaken grounds that can, these can offset their emissions. Mobambi says you might as well buy carbon credits from a coal mine. So to read more uh, about his work, you can go to m-o-n-b-i-o-t dot com. I'm now going to play a clip from the debate.
1: to grow our crops. Um, And I can quite understand where that story comes from, but a a recent study shows that um, the nitrogen losses from manure are 37% greater even than the nitrogen losses from artificial fertiliser. This system is absolutely devastating in terms of both eutrophication of living systems and in terms of nitrous oxide emissions. And it has to be continually plugged by donations of nitrogen from elsewhere. If you look at the Soil, uh, uh, soil Association's organic standards, they allow arable farmers to bring in um, um, uh, manure from conventional farms in order to plug that nitrogen gap. In other words, they're using artificial harbor Bosch nitrogen and they can use it as long as it's gone through someone else's animal first. There's a huge, huge raft of issues here which we're just not focusing on. We're we're focused on the pretty pictures. We're focused on the stories. We're focused on what we want to hear. But we have to focus relentlessly on the numbers, on the science. These huge issues, like the issue we were supposed to be debating tonight, can only be resolved by scientific evidence. If the evidence is not there, you cannot make the claim.
2: Okay, I'll give the last word to Alan. Thank you. Um, as I said at the beginning, if we all became vegan, manufactured meat, etc., expect a lot of troubles. Right across North Africa, up into China, Mongolia, Australia, etc., we've got millions of people. Ninety-five percent of the land can only feed people from animals. We can't plant trees, the rainfall is only 200, 300 millimetres of rain. You're going to get millions of immigrants, so expect the tide. If we do that, we're not addressing the cause of the problem, so expect a lot. Everything George expressed of concerns, I share his concerns. But he was expressing symptoms of current policy. And he opposes changing the way we develop policy so that we don't discuss those symptoms and we solve those problems. At the moment, all policy is developed to meet a need, a desire, or address a problem. You cannot reduce the cultural diversity, our economic diversity and nature diversity to that. So when we do it differently, we use a new concept. It's not in any branch of science. It's not in any religion in the world. It's not in any philosophy in the world. It was the hardest thing for us to discover. What could be the context for a policy? We will always have the same reasons for the policy. And if I might read you out the generic one I use, it'll give you an idea, right? And if you can relate to this, I've found people in India, Yemen, everywhere do. Instead of having the problem be the context for the policy, it would become something like this. We want stable families living peaceful lives in prosperity and physical security while free to pursue our own spiritual or religious beliefs, adequate nutritious food and clean water, enjoying good education and health in balanced lives with time for family, friends and community, and leisure for cultural and other pursuits, all to be ensured for many generations to come on a foundation of regenerating soils and biologically diverse communities on Earth's land and in her rivers, lakes and oceans and to have a good attitude, being open, tolerant, not judgmental, honest, respectful, to ensure mutual respect and support in team humanity as we learn to live with ourselves and our environment in harmony. This is the greatest war ever fought, and it's the last war ever fought, to learn to live with ourselves in harmony and with our environment. And I am all for stopping these sort of arguments And just concentrate on the cause and unite team humanity. Because every time I point a finger at you, there are three pointing back at me. Every one of us is part of this problem. I do not know you. I'm meeting you for the first time. I know one thing about you. And I'm not a magician. I know how you made every conscious decision in your life. How could I know that? because every human does it the same way and it is the cause of the problem. Just deal with that.
0: So, uniting team humanity. Um, So, does that mean grass-fed beef is good or bad for the climate? Well, it depends. Now, clearly, if you are clear-cutting forests, it's bad. Um, and, and And sometimes things that are labeled grass fed beef and it's it 's happening right now uh, that that label does not automatically mean good for you and good for the environment, but it also doesn't automatically mean bad for you and bad for the environment. Um, one commentator um, after participating in this said quote, "If you are not vegan you 're part of the problem, full stop." Now, personally, I think buying meat from local farmers and Seward Co-op and other cooperatives are great places to buy local meat. It creates a resilient ecosystems Um, and groups like tree range chickens, you know, mixing chickens with um, hazelnuts. They are supporting a thriving um, ecosystem and we can feed ourselves today and create livable futures and animals on the land. So animals on the land doing their business. You know they do their business. That's number two for, for in polite Minnesota language. Um, but what that does is that feeds the microbes in the soil. And when the microbes are viable in the soil, then it then that soil is hold, holding more carbon. And but part of it, and that's what I think that interesting clip at the end what Alan was saying and part of it is about honoring complexity um, and one of um, Alan's Savory's, um, his his saddest experience and the greater greatest blunder in his life was in the 1970s and he was working as a director and apparently um, a lot of the large environmental groups were uh, involved in this and they believed that by killing elephants they would be protecting the land um, and over 30,000 elephants were murdered um, and uh, but that was the agreed upon scientific reasoning that the elephants were harming the environment, and that but and 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 they had a lot of evidence. You know, they were looking at an evidence based thing when they were killing these elephants. But what um, Savory uh, and Savory has said is that that did not reverse the degradation of the land. In fact, the opposite happened. The land became more, um, the land was harmed by removing the elephants, not helped. And so because of this experience, he went on to observe animals on the land and how animals regenerate lands in many, many complex ways. But so the problems are very complex. And the solutions need to be complex too. But this does not mean that solutions cannot be fun and joyful. And moving towards fun and joyful solutions, I think, um, is the remedy. And I, I encourage people to listen to the show I did with James Ambry on joy and justice. Um, he did win a, a leadership award uh, this year uh, from – from from a large group. But the other thing that we can do is simple things, simple things like turning our lawns into legumes. What does that mean? So we're going to take a break. And next up, we're gonna be talking with Minnesota Representative Brad Tabke uh, about the historic session um, in, in the Minnesota legislature this year. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Laura Hedlund. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. Uh, Minnesota Representative Brad Tapke is the Vice Chair of the Transportation Finance and Policy Committee. He also sits on the Agriculture and Finance and Policy, Commerce Finance and Policy, Public Safety Finance and Policy, and he also serves as an Assistant Majority Leader for the DFL House Caucus. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Brad.
3: Thanks for having me, Laura. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks. So um, tell us a little bit about your background. You grew up on a farm?
3: Yeah, I'm a farm kid from Iowa, 4 H, uh, everything uh, that way, county fair, uh, which is just starting here in a, in a week or so. And um, did that. So, yeah, I uh, grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa, a little town called Mobile, and went to uh, University of Iowa first, then Iowa State, got a horticulture degree, and uh, ended up here in Minnesota.
0: Yeah, so you got a horticulture degree. And, and if people hear noises in the background, that might be your chickens.
3: <laughs> yeah. My, well, uh, while I was mayor, we legalized uh, the ability to have backyard chickens. And my uh, hens they must be uh, laying an egg right now because uh, she's a little chatty. So hopefully that's not too distracting for your listeners.
0: Right. And so you served as uh, mayor of Chocopee. So tell us a little bit about that experience.
3: Yeah, that was it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Uh, Easily the best gig I'll ever have. It was uh, so great. We got to uh, focus and get a lot of good things done for the environment. We uh, did a lot of parks, a lot of uh, moving toward native plantings on a lot of things. We worked uh, a ton on our downtown here in Shakopee to make sure that it's uh, accessible for everybody to be able to use, but also a a lively, active downtown. And so we've got last night, we just had uh, probably close to 10,000 people downtown for uh, a concert series that we have every Wednesday in the summer here in Shakopee. So it was uh, wonderful and, uh, coming up, Chris Hockey's playing here in a couple, uh, in a couple weeks. And so it's a really, really great thing and just focusing on community and people building together and making sure that we, uh, are taking care of our neighbors.
0: Love that. So, um, free concerts. Um, tell us more about that.
3: Yeah, that's uh, rhythm on the rails is what it's called. It's downtown Shakopee. We closed down a couple different streets and uh, have a ton of food vendors and, um, our local breweries are there and they have uh, a lot of, a uh, lot of beer that uh, people can purchase. And uh, it's, uh, they have a stage set up right on, there's a Shakopee's a railroad town. And so there's a uh, railroad track that goes right through downtown Shakopee. And so we have uh, bands on Wednesdays and, um, in the summer. So it's this year, I think we have seven or eight weeks of it and it's all put together by our uh, Shockby Chamber of Commerce and they do a wonderful, wonderful job. And so it's uh, a lot of fun to go down there. We're going to be going on vacation here for a little bit. So I'm going to miss the next couple of weeks, but uh, we'll be back for the last one.
0: And so you're in the state legislature. Tell us about um, that experience when you were first elected.
3: Yeah. Yeah, The legislature is uh, wonderful. It uh, is a really difficult uh job to be balancing things especially coming from a nonpartisan world as uh, as i was on as mayor into a partisan world so i got elected first in 2018 um we were uh the speaker of the house called me the bonus baby and so we were uh i was the seat that they did not expect to get when we um won the majority in 2018 which was wonderful and then in 2020 i lost by a couple hundred votes we had a uh, against the same guy that we beat in 2018 um, and that was uh, unfortunate and but we came back in 2022 and got just so much done with the majority of this session and uh, it was an absolute wonderful, wonderful, difficult trying uh, but extraordinary experience to just get so many different things done for um, Minnesotans uh, now and future generations of Minnesotans so that we are uh, taking care of everyone. Uh, our kids, as kids as kids, will feel the the wonderful effects of the 2023 session.
0: Yeah, so talk. I mean, people are calling this historic, and it's getting a lot of national buzz. Um, and so, um, yeah, tell us tell us about um, your experience this year.
3: Yeah, we like I said, we focused on on the future of Minnesota is taking this historic uh, surplus that we had and putting that to work to fix uh, the inequities and the issues that we've got here in Minnesota. So we, in Minnesota, we have some of the largest uh, equity gaps, some of the largest um, uh, racial gaps in anyone in the nation. So it's a really uh, bad mark here in Minnesota. And so we took and focused specifically on the fact that since, especially since COVID um, Minnesota has been having two different um economic paths and two different economic outcomes for folks and, uh, chair tax chair, Aisha Gomez does just an extraordinary job of telling the story, how we have people who have succeeded and, uh, have had a, have seen a significant amount of wealth creation since and during COVID. And then we have a whole another set of Minnesotans who have been left behind. And so we focus this session on making sure that we are, um, pushing forward for folks who are experiencing poverty and folks who are experiencing homelessness, making sure that we take that surplus and really put it to work. Um, so just one thing, the child tax credit will lift one third of Minnesota children out of poverty. Like that's just one uh, one piece of a bill that we passed. And so it uh, is huge. And so it was really good. And uh, at transportation, we focused on. Uh, transit and making sure that we have uh, future so our, our Minnesota workforce needs to have access to uh, you know fully funding education we need to have access to transportation so uh, and also to housing and so we put a billion dollars into housing transportation we focused on making sure that people get able to get back and forth to work and back and forth to school um, and that we have a fully functioning built out transit system and uh, it was just a ton of really great work for everybody.
0: And let's talk about egg uh, right now. So you authored something called the Lawns to Legumes Program. So what is that?
3: Yeah, this is a, just a wonderful program that we started and passed first in 2019. The extraordinary current senator, Kelly Morrison, she was representative Kelly Morrison back then. Um, she... Uh, authored this bill in the House with the help of Rick, uh, Representative Rick Hansen, who's the chair of the Environment Committee. And uh, what this is, is the intent of uh, helping to plant more native plants. So we have uh, local habitat destruction, we have local uh, um, ecosystems that are just collapsing in Minnesota and throughout the world uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And a lot of that, it has to do with development patterns and uh, having monocultures of lawns and Corn and beans and so being a farm kid from iowa i very much understand that uh having conventional agriculture is really really important but also having a balance of things is also extremely important and uh so what lawns legumes does is it incentivizes and helps with a reimbursement program for folks to plant native plant material at their homes in their neighborhoods at their businesses that kind of thing and so it is uh uh, has been uh previously three hundred dollars is um So people can take and plant native plants and they get reimbursed up to $300 if they qualify for the program. And so we had um, a, into the thousands, uh, the window, most recent window for applying for the program just closed on June 30th. And I'll find the number here while we're talking here in a little bit, but uh, there are thousands of people who applied for this program and this session, we, it would have been done if we hadn't re re-upped it this session. And so we put uh, $4 million over the, uh, the next two fiscal years, uh, over the biennium into lawns legumes. And so what this will do is it will take and, uh, transform uh, hundreds of thousands of square feet of land in Minnesota from lawns to legumes, which legumes and pollinator plants are really, really beneficial for, uh, the health of all of our Uh, pollinators for our bees for our monarchs for our songbirds and all of those friends that we need to make sure that our local ecosystems are healthy and so these will all support them and so people can, they can currently apply right now, um, but the next uh, cohort doesn't close until spring. And so it's uh, a really exciting program that I'm looking forward to having.
0: We're, we're going to learn more about this. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with Brad Tabke uh, with the Minnesota House of Representatives and a former mayor of Shakopee. Uh, we'll be right back. Smiling, you won't tell me why. Tell me why. It's plain to see the love go now. So. so Want to play? Why don't you come out to play? So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone striving for a pro-social world. And joining us um, right now is Rep- Minnesota Representative Brad Tapke. And again, um, Tabke. Um, again, the sound in the background is your chickens, right?
3: Yep. Those are uh, those are chickens. We have five chickens, uh, all hens, that uh, we are allowed to have here in Shakopee.
0: And you helped change that in Shakopee, it helped make backyard chickens legal.
3: Yeah. It uh, was something that um, was extremely important to my wife. Uh, so we wanted to uh, make sure to have chickens. And it was really important to me as well because I uh, grew up on a farm in Northwest Iowa and that had chores and had animals. And I think it's really important for kids to learn, uh, respect for other, uh, beings and making sure that we have, uh, chores to do on a daily basis and that they are responsible for those. So there are kids, chickens now, and, uh, they're doing really well.
0: Great. Now, uh, before we want to break your time about the law lawns to legumes program. So how does that work?
3: Yeah. So the way it works is you, uh, apply. And so we have, um, Historically, since this got started in 2019, have had uh, way, way, way more applications than money to go around for folks, and so we're hoping that uh, by putting two million a year into perpetuity into this program will help to balance that a little bit um, and help as many people uh, succeed from this program as possible. So you apply. Um, A big key component is it's working through the board, board, uh, board of water and soil health, as well as. Um, through Blue Thumb here in Minnesota. And so Blue Thumb helps to uh, accept the applications and they're really integral in the process as well as teaching people how native plants are different than if you're just going to plant a... Uh, you know, a daylily in your backyard. Daylily doesn't support nearly as many uh, pollinators and support nearly as many caterpillars and other folks like that, that we need to make sure we have a healthy ecosystem. And so if you're planting native plants, um, it takes a little while. It takes a different type of, uh, generally a different type of maintenance and care to get them, uh, it takes a little longer for them to get established. And so they do a ton of education on making sure that people know how to grow native plants and be successful with the program.
0: So um if if someone has a lawn um how, how does this work do you have to have uh, Kentucky bluegrass to be able to um apply for this $300 or how, how does that work
3: no, it's anybody who wants to plant native plants um, that uh, it applies. So if you have a big lawn, um, we highly advocate that people are uh, reducing their lawn size because it takes a lot of chemicals, it takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of inputs to have uh, what we traditionally think is a, as a healthy, stable lawn. And so uh, by reducing that, it adds more area for native plants to be planted. And so, but if you have other areas, like if you have a, a spot that's planted between, you know, a uh, in a hell strip, like between your uh, sidewalk and road and, and street that you want to make sure that that is easier to maintain. And it's got some plants in it right now that absolutely those kinds of progra- programs like pocket po- gardens and things absolutely qualify for the program. And once you get accepted, then you spend the money and you do the work, and then you submit your receipts to get reimbursed for. Um, I think it's currently up to three hundred. Uh, in the next cohort, I think it's going to go up to five hundred. If I uh, if that actually um, recall that correctly, uh, but right now I think it's three hundred and fifty dollars for the current. Uh, uh, cohort that closed on June 30th. So those folks uh, will get notified here in July that they um, did or did not get accepted into the program. And the people get accepted in the program. There are different qualifications for getting accepted. Um, the, the goal is to support specifically, um, rusty patch bumblebee, and to make sure that we have that is endangered in Minnesota and across the world. And so we are trying to support that specific uh, bee friend. And with that, it there are certain places in Minnesota where they have been identified. And so we're making sure that we're getting as many native plants uh, into those areas. And so that takes a higher quality people who are traditionally disenfranchised, that gets a higher uh, level of uh, quality but we hope as we get more funding into the program that we're able to help everyone across the state of minnesota who wants to plant more native plants
0: and um so for more information and we've missed the deadline for this year but this would be for next year um but so for more information about lawns to legumes um what should people do
3: yeah people should just go to the org website so it's org, and they just have a ton of great information so um Another thing that's really wonderful about this is that people have been applying and even if they don't get accepted, they still care. They care about native plants. So they've still been planting more native plants and you can learn a ton about what native plants to plant. You can learn how to install them, maintain them, everything at BlueThumb.org.
0: That sounds great. And I know, um, I'm, I'm going to speak personally here because it's probably, I, I've been fortunate we've been in the same spot and we haven't used chemicals in over 30 years because the previous owners had grass and we've trans, transferred now to, um, I, I, call it, you can call it permaculture or just, um, um, unsuburban lawns. No, um, um, but it's, right now it's such a, beautiful time of the year. Um, I have uh, raspberries and gooseberries and blueberries and goji berries and seeing some apricots in the trees and um, strawberries and peach trees and uh, hazelnuts and this wonderful, wonderful abundance. And because of this wonderful abundance, I can watch monarchs every single day. Um, and, 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 and what I've moved towards now is more, I call it nature-led gardening. So it's kind of messy if you, but it's just so much joy to be in this space. Um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's being part of a living landscape. And I don't know if you find that too.
3: Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a huge, hugely critical point. So there's been, um, a lot of really great studies that have been done around the benefits for your local ecology around planting native plants. And so there's, um, uh, my world is horticulture, as we said before. And so if, uh, there are things called keystone species. So this isn't just needing to plant you know, uh, great native perennials and grasses and things that this can count for if uh, someone needs to plant you know, an uh, oak tree. And so oak trees, they support over 550 different species of caterpillars and insects as in that larval stage. And uh, so it's native to upper Midwest in Minnesota, but like a ginkgo tree, for example, Um, is not native to here, and it only supports five different caterpillars. And so it's really important to get things uh, planted that work and live here. And I just went back and looked, and uh, that for this latest round of Launce legumes, there were over 10,000 people who applied, Mm. and uh, only a few of those will be able to get uh, with the money that was available from the previous allocation, be able to get funded. And so I hope everyone stays with the program and keeps, uh, keeps working together because there's a significant amount more money available as we, as we go into the future to really help folks to get those native plants in the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, um, I, I like the statistics you just used, but why, why do we want these native plants?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question because we've got uh, landscapes that are uh, really dominated by, in general, by non-native uh, plant material. So uh, if you go to a, a typical, we'll use a commercial landscape, it's got daylilies and autumn joy sedum and Russian sage and Carl Forrester grasses and all things that uh, did not um, evolve here. And when, but when you use native plants, they co-evolved at the same time with our monarch caterpillars. So monarchs need um, monarchs need milkweed in order to grow and to thrive. And so that's the only thing basically that our monarch caterpillars eat. And if we've eradicated all the milkweed, um, through different agricultural practices and different landscape practices and things, there's very few left, uh, for the monarchs to find and to use for their caterpillars to grow and thrive. And so that really, really plummets, uh, decreases the number of monarchs that are migrating back and forth and uh, uh, habitat destruction in Mexico as well is really putting a, a damper on monarchs. But uh, as well, we've got lots of different uh, carpenter bees and different, uh, there are hundreds of different native bees in Minnesota that are extremely important for pollination of, of food crops and uh, for supporting a uh, jumping all over the place on you sorry but no uh, it's like chickadees for example which are songbirds that we really want to have here in minnesota chickadees require five to six thousand caterpillars just to raise a uh, fledge of chickadee uh, babies and so it takes a th- it takes five to six thousand caterpillars in order to make sure that they are uh, growing healthy and those caterpillars won't live on in general non-native plants and so we need to make sure that we have native plants here available for that entire ecosystem to thrive and grow
0: and yet I mean something I've talked to you a, a long time but yet the American lawn is is almost um, it's almost holds a reverence or almost a spiritual hold on our communities, even though it's a very um, non vital place.
3: Yeah, exactly, and it has, and it absolutely does have its place in for some. For some folks, if if folks value having a lawn where you can, uh, you know, kick a ball and play soccer and and those kinds of things in your, in your uh, home landscape, or if some people have uh, daycares and different things like that, there's, there's always a time and a place for everything, but there are also ways where you can reduce the, the biggest problem is uh, with lawns is it's just a monoculture where there's only one thing and it doesn't support any of our, uh, you, you don't grow you know caterpillars in there you don't grow any insects in there that just doesn't it's not able and then we pile on chemicals for with fertilizer and uh and weed control and different things on top of those lawns and it's just a sink of really bad really bad things but there are alternatives that people i'm really uh excited and hopeful for as we're moving forward i think people are really starting to understand that this is a bad thing like having our kids play on uh places where um we're using a lot of pre emergence and a lot of different chemicals. I think people are really starting to grasp the fact that that's just not healthy for our future and for kids, not and just the entire ecosystem as well. And so, uh, people are transitioning to bee lawns and people are adding clover to their lawns and different things that do support that ecosystem if they want to have that, uh, uh type of play area or open area or whatever their their needs may be and starting to reduce at the edges and pull those in and putting in a lot more native plants and uh, starting to make that transition of understanding it's really important to have these things
0: and there's not one way to do any one thing. It's complex. So everyone can find their own their own rhythm with it. And I know with uh, some people are surprised um when they actually see the lawn because we haven't sprayed or anything. And it's still I mean we have areas of flat that we mow. It looks like grass, but if you look closely at it, there's all sorts of different there's clover and a bunch of other things that are just growing. It's um and so I mean I think that uh I'm glad to see that this is a trend and I I just hope it becomes the dominant thing.
3: I couldn't agree more. And as we get into more issues with climate change and what's happening, like we look uh, into Canada and all the fires and all the smoke that we've been having this year. And, uh, then with the, the massive changes in, um, so like we're supposed to go to, we're doing a trip to the Northeast and we're doing a camping trip and we're supposed to go to Vermont and Vermont has just been, uh, hit with, uh, uh, places got 10 to 12 inches of snow of snow, 10, 12 inches of rain. Um, Overnight, and so it was uh, really, really catastrophic and devastating to so many places. And these the climate issues that we're having, we need in Minnesota to make sure to protect our water, and we need in Minnesota to make sure that we are uh, using water as wisely as we possibly can. And with that, uh, lawns are a terrible use of water. Um, there, there can be needs for it at some points, but it just it takes over an inch of water a week to keep lawns just alive. And so it uh, is really important. And we reduce those inputs.
0: In retirement-ready lawns, a nice lot of milkweed and, and whatever whatever works. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Um, we're joined by Minnesota Representative Brad Tapke, um, who is also serves as an assistant majority leader for the DFL House. Um, and so one of the other bills that was passed is deep green, um, deep winter greenhouses. So tell us about that.
3: Yeah, thanks. This is just something I'm really, really excited and uh, passionate about is, is our food production and uh, making sure that we have sustainable food production here in Minnesota. So especially during the winter months, like this past winter, we had a lot of shortages of lettuce and uh, broccoli, and cauliflowers and cold, cool season grass. Uh, cool season foods that grow um, that we can grow here in Minnesota under greenhouses. So all of that today, uh, the vast majority of that anyway is all shipped in and grown in California and Southern United States, as well as in South America and uh, other places. So it's a huge uh, cost in transportation as well as uh, impact on air quality and different things like that. So I, we um, funded uh, this session in the ag committee, we, uh, between the house and the Senate, we put $700,000 into what are farm scale winter greenhouses. And this is the next step past people may have heard of something called deep winter greenhouses. And what it is, is, um, you take and in the winter you put cool season, uh, produce in there. So lettuces, uh, mustard greens, uh, kohlrabi, just different things like that. Cauliflowers, cabbages, um, that have a shorter season and can live with cooler temperatures. And so what these greenhouses do is during the day, they heat up, uh, from the energy of the sun and they take and store that energy in a, uh, they dig down below and they put a bunch of rocks and a bunch of different ways to transport that heat from the air above into the rocks. And so overnight when it gets colder, those rocks release that heat and So that keeps those greenhouses around 50, 55 degrees and uh, they don't freeze at night. And so they uh, have been just proven to be uh, extremely efficient. And so the farm scale winter greenhouses, what we uh, funded this year, to have pilot projects across the state of Minnesota so that we are making sure to understand exactly how they work so that we can have this throughout the state of Minnesota and uh, connect it with schools and connect it with prisons and connect it with uh, CSAs and different things like that so that we have fresh produce available all year long. It's grown here in Minnesota. And the great thing about this is that uh, the uh, greenhouse that we have here in Minneapolis in December of this past year, it was this winter, it was, brutally cold. Like it was really, really cold all December long. And it only cost $250 to heat that all the entire month of uh, December. And so they are really cost efficient. They only take between 20 and $30,000 to build. And what I want to do in the future is have hundreds, if not thousands of these all across the state of Minnesota so that we can produce our own food all winter long.
0: Wow, what a beautiful vision. Um, I appreciate all this work um, because um, this is all about creating an anti-fragile food system. I mean, the fact that we're relying on California, which, of course, climate crisis, it's growing desert, it's it's growing food in the desert, taking that water. Um, So how do we have a food system that can feed people and be sustainable and local?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, not have the, the transportation uh, cost that it takes to get things back and forth. And so we can connect these with each community. And um, like right now, folks who are uh, uh, food uh, farmers in Minnesota, they have an off season and uh, it's really difficult on there economically to have that off season where, yeah, they can uh, take vacations and they can, they can rest, but they also don't have any income coming in. So it, it costs a lot more. And it's a, our uh, food farmers are really um, in a fragile um economic situation. And so this will help them to move forward. And so like the state of Alaska has a lot of these that are built already. They have mm. entire orchards that are under glass right now that the, uh, state has paid for because they want to have fresh apples. Um, and the season isn't long enough to be able to grow their own apples and orchards. And so they have these to, to fix the shoulder, shoulder seasons. And, um, do that kind of work. And so we want to make sure that we have that here in Minnesota so that we uh, have uh, food for everyone all year round.
0: And, you know, it's so disheartening um, or insane, maybe, um, that uh, the cost of fruits and vegetables are so high. And because people aren't eating fruits and vegetables, our medical costs are more expensive. So if we can make fruits and vegetables more accessible, um, we can actually save dollars um, on when it comes to healthcare.
3: Do you agree with that? Exactly. No, no, that's a huge, huge thing that we we must continue to work on is uh, and being out and uh, like a lot of places we envision and hope that these can be community gardens where people can come in and uh, community can build them and uh, they open up during the summer so they're able to have Um, things growing in there, you can grow tomatoes and different things in the summer. And then during the winter, they can be for those cooler season crops and keep salads going and make sure that schools have, have what they need. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. In addition to that, we did just a ton of work this session on access to food, um, across the state of Minnesota from food shelves and, um, uh, farm to school programs and making sure that we are supporting urban agriculture in the state of Minnesota and and funding like second harvest heartland to make sure that people have food. Um, and it's just really, really proud of that work that we did.
0: And so thrilled that universal school lunches, um, passed. I mean, that is, that's just, that was really a wonderful thing. And we're down to three minutes. I want to make sure we give you at least a chance to talk a little bit about transportation.
3: Yeah, that, uh, I, I talked a little bit about it before, but we have, uh, just a lot of, um, over the past two decades, especially in Minnesota, we started on a good path for uh, mass transportation and uh, that really uh, took a nosedive when we haven't been adequately funding or funding operations for uh, mass transit here in Minnesota. So Shakopee is in a, a unique position where we've got uh, the 169 bridge uh, for people who are familiar with our geography to get across and it's backed up. Uh, it was a lot less during COVID obviously, but since COVID it's backed up every morning and every evening um, and people get stuck and we need to give people options as to how they can get back and forth, not just from my community, but the, all across the, all across the Metro and across the state. And so we put a ton of funding um, into expanding transit so there's a, a metro wide sales tax that goes into effect um that will uh help fund building out transit and, and operating it across the state as well as making sure that our transit system a big project i worked on was light rail safety and making sure that that is a safe and efficient ride for everyone uh to be able to use even it uh we had a big conversations around the it, it Someone's experiencing homelessness. It's not a crime for them to be on a train. And so we need to make sure that we're taking care of everybody. Um, and transit's kind of a magnet for people who are experiencing mental health issues and uh, uh, substance abuse issues and addiction issues. And so we need to make sure that we are working together with uh, human services folks to get them the help they need and uh, have a safe trip.
0: And do this. Uh, We're down uh, to the last two minutes. I also want to make sure we talked about the Minnesota River's erosion and how something passed in the infrastructure bill can help with the erosion problems.
3: Yeah, a big part of what we did in the uh, infrastructure bill, the bonding bill, is fund um, riverbank stabilization. So we have just here in Shakopee and Scott County, we have uh, boatloads of uh, the shore and dirt just flowing down the Minnesota River every year. And that's getting more and more difficult and more and more dangerous um, as we have climate change and these just massive events where we get uh, inches and inches of rain in one really quick time. And so that's eroding the Minnesota River and here in Shakopee, it's uh, impacting all of our infrastructure and uh, starting to take out some of our sewer systems. And that's a really bad thing for everybody. And so we have uh, funding for uh, stabilizing the riverbank so that that is much healthier and better for everybody here. So it's Eden Prairie, Shakopee, and then down down the way. And there are other projects like that across the state as well.
0: So Minnesota Representative Brad Tapke, and um, if people want to meet you, there's an event you have coming up on August 21st.
3: Yeah, thanks for mentioning this. We have uh it's really fun. This will be our second annual uh sweet corn and BLTs. So this is my uh, Iowa Farm Boy coming out and uh we have sweet corn that's locally raised here in Shakopee that uh we have and it's uh August 21st from 5:30 to 7. It's a fundraiser and then we have a big pie auction. My mom makes a ton of pies and the speaker of the house is bringing a pie this year and so there's uh, a lot of fun stuff happening. So it's Love. here in Shakopee and uh Uh,
0: Lions Park. Lions Park. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, Brad uh, Tafke, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.